Thanks for tuning in to the Southern Way Hunting Podcast on the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and on this show, you'll hear hunting tactics, stories, and strategies from hunters across the South. Our aim is to sharpen our skills as hunters and outdoorsmen, become more efficient and effective in pursuit of our craft, and even have a little fun while we're at it. And of course, no matter the pursuit, we focus on doing things the Southern way. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Southern Way Hunting Podcast. And I've got my buddy, Mr. Mark Haslam, on the line today. Mark, how's it going? Good, Josh. How are you? Good, man. Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely glad you could jump on the show. Uh, Mark, you're with Southeast Whitetail. And before we get too far into the conversation, we've got some exciting news to share that we're going to get to here in just a minute. But before we get to it, can you give me a bit of a rundown of uh, your your past or your you know who you are, what you do? Your hunting season, maybe so far, your your season just ended yesterday, right? That's right. All right. Sad so day. How'd it go? It went very well. Um, I killed um, three nice bucks and a, 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 a bunch of does, and we, we ended up with a very good year at our farm. So, nice. How, um, so how many, for, for context for people, um, and we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on this a little bit later, you guys have a very aggressive doe harvest uh, quota that you're trying to hit every year. And that's because of where you are. The deer population is extremely high there. How many does were you shooting for this year and how far did you make it? So we killed 78 total deer. Um, and that there was about, I think seven or eight quality bucks, I think eight quality bucks. There were some mistakes in their course there were some button bucks in there and there was a, there was a, the button bucks really picked up toward, towards the end of the season right. uh, mistakes. And yep. there's a yep. number, number of reasons, number of reasons why, and the rest were does. Um, so it, it was, um, we just, just like what you said, we've been going very aggressive with yeah. those doe numbers. Excellent. And that's where, you know, if you follow the National Deer Association or you talk to some very serious deer managers, a lot of times they're going to recommend that you're shooting those does as early as you can. And a lot of that comes back to uh, mistakes are way easier to make. And not to say you should stop. Like if you've got a high number of does you needed to take, it doesn't mean stop later in the season. Like keep going by all means and, and take the deer that you need to take. But at the end of the day, it's a lot easier to shoot a button buck at the end of the at the end of the season because they look a lot less like a fawn and a lot more like an adult doe at that time of the year. Absolutely. Yeah. It's. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about your background, how you got into hunting, how you got to kind of where you are today, because you're, you've transitioned over the years. You hunt very differently now than you did say when you were in middle school. Yeah, that's right. So, um, my background is, um, I'm in real estate. That's my career. Uh, I've been in it since out of college, uh, in t- t- 2005 and, uh, mostly do commercial investment properties and land, uh, transactions. And, uh, my family, we long story short, we were in a hunt club, um, ever since I was in kindergarten, my dad, uh, had some of his friends p- put one together. And then by the time I was getting out of college, dad was looking for, uh, a real estate investment timber, uh, put some money in land and timber. And so, uh, we purchased a farm in 2006 in South Carolina, which, um, that's where we've hunted all my life. 
And with that, um, I started to get into more land management, herd, herd, herd management. Uh, QDM was my background as far as uh, in, in the hunting world, in our, in our hunt club, uh, quality deer management. And I started to do more and more in our property um, with our herd, the timber, the habitat. And then I started to volunteer more with QDMA, now NDA, and um, did some stuff with them. And during, you know, looking back, I didn't really think about, I didn't really, I didn't realize what I was doing, but it was during COVID, during that lockdown. Um, I had been doing more things at our farm, hosting mentored hunts with um, various nonprofits, uh, QDMA, uh, one of uh, the Al Brothers Non-Professional Deer Manager of the Year Award in 2020. Like the weekend the world was going going down in March, mid-March, and then right at the cusp of COVID. And during COVID at lockdown, I had this idea that I wanted to launch um, some type of media outlet, something to kind of showcase what I've been doing at the farm and showcase a lot about the South, mm-hmm. the Southeast, because hunting media, you know, there's there's so many good good products out there, content, but a lot of it doesn't translate to the Deep South, right. you know, uh, Louisiana all the way to Florida, Tennessee, Alabama, the the Carolinas. So I came up with Southeast Whitetail and was doing it during during lockdown, and I I. Uh, create a website and started writing articles and I wanted it to be really content driven, not just a t-shirt company, but real articles. And then I started uh, the following year doing, doing some podcasts. Um, and then the next year I started doing some consulting work and then with my background in real estate, I'll, I, I was able to kind of blend the real estate in with it as well. So, um, that's what I've been doing, but really the focus to kind of make it concise of Southeast whitetail is a strong background of quality deer management, habitat work, and, um, you know, hunting in the South yeah. in a Southern hunting culture. Right. So tell me about your, uh, some of that, those earlier years, right. In a hunting club, you, I'm guessing our, our backgrounds are extremely similar when it comes to the hunting club, the hunting club culture, the makeup of the hunting club, like what that lease land was like, what we were able to do. So tell me a bit about how you guys were able to implement some, some QDM principles, you know, early on and how that then evolved. And you were able to take really a lot more steps down the road when you got your own piece of ground. Yeah. So that, that's a very good question, Josh. It, you know, my background in a hunting club is probably similar to a to a lot of people in the South is that there's not a whole lot you can do. Um, the land that we leased from, they were private individuals. They weren't timber companies, okay. private individuals. Um, but we couldn't do much to it. You know, we converted some, you know, some, some, some previous loading decks in a food plots, basically put food plots wherever we could fit one in. Right. And sometimes the location where you can fit it in where there's an opening is not an ideal location for a stand, right. You know, why, why deer would step out there, but you just have to work with, you know, what you're doing. The food plots were, you know, w- what we could get in the ground, trying to, trying to have work days. It, it's, it's really, we, we weren't able to manipulate the land at, at all, except for a food plot, which is not really food plots aren't really habitat work. Right. I mean, it kind of right. is and isn't, but it's really not. Um, 
so it, it, it was mostly feeders. You know, right. it's 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 mostly feeders um, hunting the woods, and then is primarily practicing QDM what we could, which was passing on younger bucks, right? And trying to you know shoot does, and we had different rules throughout the years. You know, you have to shoot two does for every buck, or I, I'm sorry, there was like a one buck minimum for our club, even though you could shoot more in the state and that made people kind of really focus on, is that the buck I want to shoot? Mm. Um, you know, uh, shooting two does, uh, minimum and really just trying to let the young bucks walk. Right. Um, and we would collect jaw bones because back then when I was younger, South Carolina, if you were enrolled in the uh, deer tag program where they gave you tags, uh, like landowner tags or hunt club tags, you had to submit jawbones. Okay. From from the previous years, right. they have done away with it probably because it was I can't I, I can't imagine it really being very successful from their side. Right. Right. People saving those. Right. Right. Yeah. You know what? When I talk to landowners and and you know full disclosure, you and I are both consultants, uh, help private landowners when it comes to. Uh, managing their deer herd, managing their ground, and so we we come at a lot of this from a from a really wanting to better the deer herd and have a maximum have maximum deer herd health on a piece of ground. And so when people come to us and say things like, "Hey, I've got a forty or a hundred or a two hundred or however many acre lease that I can't do anything on," I and I'm sure you, you know, the first thing we tell them is that you can if you can't cut a single tree and you can't plant a single seed and you can't burn a single thing or disturb through disking or anything like that, if you can't do any of that stuff, you can still manage the hunters on your property. You can manage what you're harvesting and that will pay off. Now, will the neighbor shoot your bucks? Yes, (laughs) absolutely. They are going to get, they're going to get most of them probably uh, or, or some of them. But it will pay off for you. It will yeah. help and benefit yeah. you. Unless you've got an extremely small track that's just not setting up well. And then there's maybe some things we can change as far as how you access the property and what you're doing to get in there and hunt it. But honestly, that still all comes back to hunter management. There's a lot you can do just with self-discipline and self-control and thinking through the way you attack and approach a property. So, uh, man, really excited to have you on the show today, Mark. One of the things that we wanted to share today is that, uh, so I've been hosting this podcast for a couple of months now, and it's just gotten to be crazy busy for, for me, you know, just extremely, extremely busy. And I am going to ha- actually have to step away from doing the Southern Way podcast. I was really excited to take it over because I was, you know, I moved back from Wisconsin a couple of years ago, back down to the South, which I consider home. And uh, was excited to start a Southern show, but with, you know, other business ventures and things taking off, I just don't have the time to devote to it. Uh, Mark, you don't have any time either, but you were willing to step into the driver's seat here. (laughs) 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 If we're just being honest, neither one of us have any time, but, uh, but you were, you were willing to step into the driver's seat here. You've been podcasting for a little while. So maybe tell folks a little bit about, you know, the podcast with Southeast Whitetail and, you know, your, your decision or thought process around stepping in here. Yeah, I I was really, uh, I was, um, very appreciative that, that y'all reach out that y'all reached out to me about the Southern way. And I'm looking forward to, um, 
to continuing your success on the, on this podcast. I, like I mentioned earlier, um, let's see, I, 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 I launched Southeast Whitetail at the beginning of 21. And then I started to do the podcast and beginning at 22. So I just finished up two years doing the podcast and I never saw myself doing it. And in fact, I don't think I'm, I never thought I was a good public speaker, but I started to do um, beginning in 20 or maybe 19. I started to be invited to do some guest spots mm. on podcasts. Right. Um, My other podcast included. We've had you on there. Right. It, it, yep. Absolutely. And I've had you, you on mine and right. um, it was about some of the hunts I've, you know, some of the bucks I've killed. And then it was, you know, the average conservationist and, you know, all the way down to doing it with Mark Kenyon on a wire to hunt. But um, my wife bought me this microphone because I was doing some guest spots. And so I had this microphone and two years ago, I just, I sat down same desk, recorded episode, just kind of just simply freestyling, just my, just, just myself. And I already had uh, something to talk about because Southeast Whitetail had already been launched the previous year, had been around for a year, didn't, didn't run some articles. So I was kind of expanding on what Southeast Whitetail is. And I really enjoyed it and had some people that listened to it and thought it was good. And I, then I took a chance. I, I, I sent an email and I asked, um, Dr. Marcus Lashley was my first guest. Now, why, I, I, you know, I'm in real estate, you're in the business too. So it's just like when anybody else says, the answer is always no, mm. if you don't ask. Right. And I sent him an email and he, um, he accepted and I interviewed him and he interviewed Dr. Mike Chamberlain afterwards. But my, my Southeast Whitetail has been really driven mostly on a lot of what I nerd out on is the research based side of wildlife, right. of habitat and wildlife. And that blends right into QDM, quality deer management, which is a philosophy. It's a, it's an ideology as far as how to manage deer. Um, it's not how to grow the biggest buck in the county, but managing deer. Right. And when you manage deer, this is a side I don't want to get emphasized as much. When you're doing everything for deer and you're killing these deer, I mean, like, <laughs> I know that sounds, <laughs> it sounds silly, but a minute ago you were talking about our aggressive approach to harvesting does. Mm -hmm. You start taking off mo more deer off the landscape, balancing the herd, making them healthier. What does that do? It, 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 it will instantly over time create better habitat for wild quail, for turkey, for butterflies, ends, all those, all those different species that will better promote everything else. Right. So if you, if you, if you let the deer get out of whack, they're going to eat each at a house and home, which means house and home for quail and turkey too. Right. But the podcast is really, I like to uh, interview a lot of biologists about their research um, and, and, and kind of, you know, basically taking, I like to think that I'm trying to like a transition of the biologist go into like the everyday person. I like, you know, right. how can we take that, those studies about moon phases or whatever else? Um, I mean, there was one recently that is about to be published that I think Mark Turner did it at, at University of Tennessee where it's like for every extra pound, it's like, it's like every extra 10 pounds a doe puts on. Like if you increase your, 
your your average doe weight by 10 pounds. You're increasing the potential of their buck fawn antlers by like two or three inches. Wow. And now wow. that might not amount to a lot of people, but like that's that's pretty damn cool. So if yeah. that's there, then you really yeah. should be trying to focus on your overall deer health. It, right. It's little stuff right. like that, you know? Right. That, and that's huge, man. Even when it comes down to, and I'm sure you've nerded out on some of the epigenetic stuff where essentially DNA uh, or chromosomes turn on and off within a doe if she's been healthy, you know, where you get two, three, four generations down the road, those deer, their DNA has told them, hey, it's okay to thrive in this environment because there's sufficient resources. And so now you've got fourth and fifth generation bucks that are going to be larger, expressing more of their genetic potential because of the management you did 15, 20 years ago, right? So it just, it just builds on itself and it becomes more and more important. Uh, and I think it's huge too, to talk about that piece of managing for quail and, and turkey, not managing specifically for them, but when we're managing for deer, we are making the, the landscape better for quail and turkey because there's a crisis of, especially quail numbers, um, turkey crisis may be a little bit overblown uh we're obviously not seeing the numbers of turkeys that we once did how much of that is just them coming within carrying capacity i don't know i don't know where we should be with turkeys jury's still out quail numbers not doing well though um and a lot of what uh quail are going to prefer as you know quality food quality cover that's going to be some of the first stuff to go on a property that's not managed well yeah, like I mean, if, if you're, I'm sure you're, you're going to be telling people um, when you're consulting this week about mowing. I mean, you start yeah, going to town mowing it. every little thing. <laughs> stop doing it. That's what I tell them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, quail have nowhere to go. It, yeah. It's, yeah, quail have really been forgotten. It, 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 it's, you know, people are focusing a lot on turkeys, which they should be. But it's interesting about quail. It's like, you know, people, it's like you would never hunt a pen raised turkey, would you? Mm. It's illegal. But you, you know, you people hunt pen raised quail, and I'm not knocking it, but right. there are wild quail, and we should be promoting, um, you know, you're doing all this other stuff, and it helps with that. But one last piece about the podcast and kind of my background is that yes, I do focus a lot on the research side, uh, QDM habitat, but I also make I always I've always tried to make a good. Uh, connection with um, public land hunters right. and people that don't have land. And case in point, I had an episode with Dr. Bronson Strickland. We were talking about, talking a lot about deer movement, deer behavior. Um, I, I talk a lot about stuff that you can learn from the skinning shed, mm-hmm. or if you or if you take your deer to a processor, have them pull these data points, and that can tell you how to better hunt and kill bucks on public land. Yep. There's a lot of things that you know you can learn about deer that even if you're on public land will make you a better hunter as far as when to be in the woods, when they're going to heat, when they're being receptive, when they're being bred, and then you back up some. And that tells you when you should be rattling, when you should be calling, when you should just be sitting, making all all those day sets. Um, Because like you and I both know the rut in the South, I mean, it's, it's across the board. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. We got a lot of guys probably thinking what rut they do. We don't have a rut down here. We, we we have that one day a year I saw a buck chase a doe and that's that's pretty much all we get. But yeah. uh, you you however have got some great running activity on on your place. I mean you've had success calling bucks. You've had success with decoys. Um, 
I mean, it's it's phenomenal what you have accomplished on your place. Uh, not only for deer, but also I love seeing those videos that you post online or, or on Instagram where it's like, hey, look at this covey of quail hanging out in the pines, you know, and uh, just awesome videos, awesome uh, to see. But you're right, man. I had you on the first time to talk about killing bucks in the morning, and I really yeah. like your strategy for the early season, killing bucks in the morning, because that's just so counterintuitive for what a lot of people say. And I think a lot of it is fueled by Midwestern style hunting, where these properties are accessed typically from the road, which is where the ag field is, which 99% of us down here don't have ag fields that we're hunting, especially if you're on public ground. So they say, don't go in in the mornings. Why not? Well, you're blowing the deer out of the food sources. Well, no, I'm not. <laughs> you know, what if I don't, yeah. co- what if I don't walk in through the food source? What if, what if I'm hunting public yeah. land and I'm accessing a different direction? So, um, yeah, you, you have gone into that in detail with me and, and has been, uh, very, very good to talk about, but, uh, let's talk a little bit about pine trees, right? I think this is, it relates obviously there with the hunting in the morning and it's something everyone can kind of relate to here in the South. There's a general consensus. I did a show this past year. Uh, down in Perry, Georgia, had a big yeah. buckarama, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people that I talked to there, I talked to a lot of folks about deer hunting. Man, I was I was tired of talking about deer hunting by the time it was over because it was it was <laughs> I know the feeling. It was three days of just <laughs> going on about deer, and everybody or very many of the people had the same experience. Oh, I've I just hunt a pine lease, and our so our deer hunting can't be any good. Or we've yeah. just got pine ground that's managed for timber. So it can't be any good. Tell me yeah. a little bit about your thoughts on that. Well, yeah, and I, you're right. I mean, we all hear that. And it's for some people, unfortunately, that can be the case. Right. Um, and this is what I talk a lot about as far as pine trees is, is um, uh, diversifying your pine age structure. So if you have if you have a hundred acres or a thousand acres in, in either size, if, if it's wall to wall, the same age class of pine trees, that's not an ideal situation. It's going to be very difficult, whether it's a, a clear cut or it's a newly replanted, you know, reforested clear cut. It's a, now like a bedding thicket. If it's all bedding thicket, that makes it difficult. If it's all, you know, so when you, and we start, we fell into this in my farm where um, we had some ice damaged pine trees in South Carolina, which is, you know, interesting. So <laughs> Those usually don't ice- go together. <laughs> yeah. so, so it was kind of like, you know, um, the crop was damaged, okay? And we could let it ride, but the ones that weren't damaged were just going to, you know, Pine trees, it's a commodity, and you look at it like a long-term investment, okay? And if you're not managing it the right way, thinning it properly, um, you know, you're trying to grow the best. It, it sounds, you know, elementary, but you're trying to, trying to grow the, the best tree, you know? And a lot of times you want to cut the bad ones out, but let the best ones grow, that kind of thing. So we clear, we made some clear cuts early, early, early on the farm. And when, when someone makes a clear cut for the first time, it can be pretty shocking right. because people talk about, you start to see more about it in, in hunting content now about how to hunt clear cuts and how they're actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. 
when you, when you do it, it's just like a wasteland. Why would a deer come through here? Well, they will. And you start to get forbs coming up, different natural vegetation, depending on what herbicides you, you use or, 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 or don't do for site prep. And that's another rabbit hole. But basically, you start to kind of checkerboard your property. You know, you've got, uh, let's say you've got a couple hundred acres and you can clear cut 20 or 30 or 50 acres. And then that's going to become essentially a bedding area for the next you know, if it's a sandy upland site, it's not going to last that long, maybe five, six years. If it's a low bottom site, I've got some now that are riding on 10, 12 years, mm. a good thicket. There's your bedding thicket. And then you've got the adjacent pine trees that are 20 plus years old, close to 30. They've been thin once, maybe about to thin them again, and you're burning or you're burning and disking and you're creating that natural food source. You got the bedding and you're checkerboard in your property. So, you know, excuse me, where you're bedding and then you've got the natural food in this, in this thin pines. And then if you can put, if you have, if, if you can uh, fit in some food plots, some destination food plots, you can create some natural deer movement there, not necessarily funnels or pinch points, you know, where they're going to bed, you know, where they like to feed. Um, and, and that can be a very good setup where you can take a pine, uh, a pine farm and create real setups like how I hunt where I'm hunting on a climber. I'm, I'm, I'm hunting mobily and I'm catching deer coming and going out of that, um, out of those thickets coming and going from bedding or during the ruts, you get bucks that are cruising those areas, mm-hmm. um, scent checking for does and heat. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I love seeing some of the pictures and stuff that you share um, from these locations that you're hunting because it's a lot of it's almost like, wow, that's kind of a food plot in the pine trees just because yeah, of how yeah. lush it is down below you. But really, that's kind of the equivalent to a travel area slash staging area that we might hear about people hunting up north, you know, Absolutely. or up in the Midwest, yeah. right? Like we, they've got the big ag fields. You're replacing that with a destination food plot if you're able. Right, they've got their staging areas, which we're replacing with well-managed pines with lots of food. Or they talk about hunting, you know, those first oak trees just outside of bedding. Well, if we've got oaks, great, we're going to do that. But if not, we're giving them really good food, not far outside of bedding in our twenty-year-old pines, thirty-year-old pines, whatever the case may be, and hunting along those thickets. And uh, you're right, we maybe won't have the pinch points uh, that they will maybe have there in the Midwest, created by a lot of these fields and stuff. But you know what, we do have, we have rifles. And so, <laughs> that's right. Which uh, you've talked right. you've talked with me before about the pressure that rifle hunting puts on a property mm-hmm. and kind of a, a little different perspective. And I'll be honest with you, I was up in the air, probably leaned a little more of like I'd love for my property to be bow hunting only. You one hundred percent changed my mind that day, Mark. And ever since then, Good. I've been Good. I've been thinking the <laughs> same way as you. I mean, it, just because it was totally different than how I'd thought about it, you know. I never avoided rifle hunting and I was always, you know, I, I will rifle hunt during rifle season for sure. But you changed my mind that day to where I started thinking like, man, this, it might not be worth going into a lot of spots and locations or even properties during an early bow season when I can just wait three more weeks and have a really good hunt with a rifle. So tell me about your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, and it, I, I these have all been developed um, that I've experienced over the past eighteen or nineteen years at our farm, and it, it just it, it, it we were so you know worried about hunt, you know rifle shots, and I guess long story short is I I love bow hunting. I, I do it, but I only do it when it makes sense. But bow hunting is very close. It's very intimate at times. And you are getting, you have to get on top of whatever you are. Right. And if you're hunting on top of a destination food source and you don't, if you don't release an arrow and you get down and, you know, you're getting the deer or whatever, there's always going to be deer around. Right. And if you're that close to a destination food source, a food plot, man, you're putting a lot of, I guess what I'm trying to say is that in my opinion, um, the greatest pressure is you and I. It's, right. it's, it's the human pressure. And it goes back to what you were saying a minute ago about uh, hunting hunting mornings. It, it, it's the weirdest. It, it's, you know, pretty soon, season's over, we're going to start to see deer in these fields everywhere. They just know. And they're going to be out in the fields, out, out, out in the open, um, all with it through the summer. And it's going to be 100 degrees in South Carolina, and you're going to see bucks and peanut fields on the side of the highway. Mm. And they're going to be there until when? You know, until the season starts. Right. And all of a sudden, you don't see them there. But then people will talk about, oh, well, the bucks aren't moving because it's too hot. I said, well, wait a minute. I, I saw them in the summer 30 minutes before dark. They're in the sunlight, 100 degrees What's the difference? It's you and I. All of a sudden, there's just massive, you know, most people listen to podcasts, doing habitat work, they're doing it year round. But the majority of folks, they start right before hunting season. Mm -hmm. Hanging stands, trimming, feeders, food plots, all that. So all of a sudden, there's this massive influx of humans. Right. So, you know, as far as rifle shots going to that, um, of course, they're loud, as we all know. But man, deer hear all kinds of stuff throughout the year. And here's something else. I just kind of thought about this just now. Maybe I pay attention to it more, but I feel like where I hunt in South Carolina, if, if you're out in the woods doing whatever, right now in the off-season doing chainsaw work or you're hunting, I always hear shots. I hear, right. I, I hear it. There's, there's a person that shoots an AR-15 at 5 o'clock every day. There was, <laughs> there was a guy that – there, there was someone shooting, shooting an AR at 7.40 a.m. the day after Christmas. Wow. Um, there's, just, there's just gunshots everywhere. There's trucks on the road. There's equipment. They hear a lot of stuff. Right. And there's a number of times. Now, when I'm on a field, if you shoot a deer in a field, um, a food plot, ag field, whatever, you're only getting one shot traditionally. Right. You're getting one shot. If you get a second shot, you got to be careful because you're probably picking up one of the fawns. Right. That may be. But when you're in the woods and you're in that thin pine stand or you're in the woods and you shoot, a lot of times the deer, they don't really know. Right. But they hear all this kind of stuff. And so, case in point, I mean, I was – so we, we killed 78 deer so far. I say so far because we, we do have Youth Day Saturday. We're going to take some kids. Nice. 78 deer over end of August through the 1st, all rifles. Right. I mean, I, they were all rifles. Rifles don't – I don't think they change the behavior. It's the, it's the human, you know. Right. What's your access? And then where is your scent blowing? So I'm going to hunt here. But then where's my scent blowing? Because my scent might be blowing that way to your stand, Josh, while I'm screwing you up. It's just that kind of extra level of 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 
of thinking about things. Right. Stand, stand rotation. Stand rotation is probably the biggest driving factor at, at, at our place on seeing deer. Hmm. Okay. What does that look like for you guys? I mean, I, on the one hand, I think your, your place is, you know, you, you, you can control who is there. So it feels like, okay, that's kind of low pressure. But then I hear you also say we killed 78 deer between August and now that feels like a lot of pressure, right? Like that's a lot of deer to take, but I mean, you guys have a lot of deer obviously on the, on the place. So what does that look like for a rotation? How long between sits or how many days in a row will you sit the same spot before you back off? What does that look like for you? Um, we try not to hunt. We don't really hunt. We, we hunt maybe, uh, we're not out there all the time. A lot of weekends, but also during the week. Um, this is something else people have to think about is, you know, wind direction. You got to have a good, healthy, um, selection of, of, of the direction stands face. They can't all be based on a North wind in the cooler times of the year. A lot of times in the South, those, those, those warm fronts bring South winds. So when you have stands that have a good wide variety of, you know, wind, um, you know, wind directions, let's just say you're naturally going to have, like, if you were, if you were, I were to hunt this past week in my place, um, there was a west southwest wind, so there's a bunch of stands we couldn't hunt, right? And then maybe the next time, I mean, there's some stands simply based on that that don't get hunted for like a month just because when, when we're up there, the wind's not right, that helps. Um, and then, um, uh, really just trying to think about access, like if, if we're going to hunt one stand, um, I don't want to hunt this one next to you because the wind's blowing, you know, right. the wind's blowing that direction. So that happens. But I, I will tell you as, as far as pressure, we have pressure from, um, uh, dog hunters. We've got a fence up just a four foot fence. It, it's just on one side. It's just one side of the property that helps with those dogs, but they still get through because, you know, varmints, armadillos, possums will kind of dig under the fence and then the dog will get under. Right. There's a lot of feral dogs, around our place, you know, based around old farms, um, you know, farmers, it's, it's, there's a lot of general pressure and, but that, that's where I go back. I, I I feel like it's, it ultimately comes down to a prey predator relationship, Mm -hmm. you know, not to sound, not, not, not to sound whatever, but we're trying to kill them. And they're trying to live and they are very outstanding survival species. So it makes sense. People talk about finding an old buck, mature buck in a little tiny woodlot behind an old barn makes sense. No one's going in there. So it's just um, really just maintain, trying to maintain some good uh, pressure, you know, as far as property. Right. Do you guys have a section of your property that you set aside as quote unquote sanctuary that you say we don't go into that section or is the property pretty much all, all free game? We do. Okay. We do. How, what yeah. percentage would you say? So our farm, we, we are broken up 
over two tracks that are several miles apart. So it's not the same deer at all. Okay. One track it's, um, it's, it's mostly, it's a pine farm. So we kind of have it dead centered. Right. Um, and it's probably, um, I think it's like 20 or 30 acres. Okay. In in a really, it kind of create, it kind of helps create a hub system to where right. it's kind of centered. It feeds out. And we're, we are losing that's now we're not losing the sanctuary, but this, you know, you've got to keep tabs on what it is because we're about to do some forestry work and kind of make it better mm-hmm. because just because you don't go in the area doesn't mean deer do, you know, right. you gotta make sure they, and then on the other property, we have a natural sanctuary of a swamp system, right? We've got an old swamp and then some springhead creeks that, that, you know, filter in that. When you have something like that, Josh, you know, that a swamp is about, in my opinion, is one of the ultimate sanctuaries for a deer for right. a number of reasons. Right. I was on a I was on a property three weeks ago that I yeah. somewhere in the range of about seventy five percent of this property is is swamp and Ooh, my ju- kind of place and, and just hard to get to and <laughs> yeah. so you know we were designing the property setting things up talking with the landowner and you know he's he just bought the property so he didn't have a lot of experience with it yet but you know a lot of my recommendations were leaving some of this stuff really alone because to, to access through the swamp was going to be just atrocious. I mean, he would have to don chest waders or drive a swamp buggy straight through this thing every time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, I I really think at a lot of these locations, you're going to be better off trying to get on the edge or getting into that swamp just a little bit rather than full bore diving off into this thing. Let this be your sanctuary. Let this be your spot where we know those bucks can go in there. They can get really old and when they come out, we're waiting, you know, we're, we're, we're ready to capitalize on it because they're going to be in there, you know, yeah, you might be seeing some does and stuff betting on the edges, but your bucks, they're going to, they're going to go in there and find a high spot and they're going to be just fine. They're going to be just fine. Yeah, absolutely. Josh, you're, you're spot on. There, there are two points that come to mind and that is that I went through a phase where I was really getting aggressive bow hunting and trying to get after mature bucks. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was, I was deep diving in those swamps. I was going right in them. Right. And I, you know, this is, I was, you know, uh, watching a lot of Dan Enfall, the right. hunting beast yep. and those kind of guys, man, they, they are stone cold killers. Um, but they're doing those kind of tactics because they're hunting a lot of public land. Right. And they're, and they're going in deep because that's where those bucks are on public land. If you, if you got private land, people you're, you're consulting, they don't necessarily have to go in there. They can, but I mean, it's so risky. I mean, and, and the other point to this is that I really connected, connected some dots when, um, a lot of the South went, went through some restocking, a lot of states, I should say, went through some restocking periods, early 1900s, coming off the meat market days, before laws and you know, regulations, deer numbers were plummeted. In the state of South Carolina, and there's some other states too, but South Carolina restocked from its own state. Georgia, I think they got some, some from up north, and that's why like you know, people claim that like South Georgia has so many big bucks, but right. whatever reason, South Carolina uh, pulled from in-state, and they pulled from swamps. Mm. So, the, so they were having to restock these areas where there were no deer because they were because they were because because they were killed off. You know, right. it wasn't a disease; they were killed off by hunters. So they found them in swamps. That right there <laughs> should tell you yeah. 
that is like the ultimate refuge. Yeah. It's a security system. So yeah, man, if, if someone already has that, I mean, there are some things you could do. So like, for instance, I'm not a big hinge cut person right. typically, but if, if you're all swamps are different, but if you have a swamp that doesn't have some kind of, if it's all kind of uh, low canopy and not that much sunlight getting out, maybe take an area, fall some trees, create some bedding thicket, that kind of stuff. That, that would be good. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And that's, I'm glad you brought up that topic of hinge cutting. Cause it is, it is something that we'll use from time to time, but I feel like there's a, there's an element in which it's kind of, well, not kind of, it is overused. Right. Yeah. And it's like yeah. a hinge cut is good. If we need some immediate side cover like today, and it can be good if we want to say, Hey, Mr. Deer, don't go around this 25 yards. We want you to <laughs> yeah. go that 25 yards for bow hunting. Uh, yeah. It can be really good, but for the most part, you're typically if the if the goal is sunlight to the ground and natural regeneration of some early successional stuff, flush cut that sucker because that's going to be the best. That's going to be your best bet. Um, but well, Mark, look, man, let let's talk a little bit about the direction of the Southern Way. We're going to do a couple of episodes together um, here over the next couple of weeks. But just so folks can know what to expect moving forward, what you got any ideas or thoughts about what we may be talking about? I, Josh, I'm open to talking to, you know, just, just about anything. I mean, I, you know, what I, you know, have just absolutely loved promoting, um, on my end so far, what I've been doing Southeast whitetail was just the Southern hunting culture. Right. And, and, and that is everything we do down here, everything what you've been talking about. I mean, it's just um, we've got a very strong culture down here and it's really, you know, it's a it's a it's a year round thing. I mean, people, you know, right now people are starting to transition um, into habitat work, tur- turkey season. I mean, I, I know I know I know people hunt turkeys all over the country, but that man down here in the south, that's like a, it, it's like a religion. Yeah. And you'll find people that they if they had to choose one, they're going to choose turkey over anything else, any other species. Right. So it's, it's, um, you know, I, I, we can cover just, but just about anything, private land, public land, um, all kinds of stuff. I love it. And we had talked before and mentioned, uh, you know, a couple of different topics. One of them being dog hunting. Like if you're listening to this and you are a big dog hunter, like that's your thing. I want to talk to you, uh, not in a negative way, but I want to hear about, what you associate with that culture. I mean, I grew up, we did a little bit of dog hunting, but it kind of wasn't our, wasn't our thing. And our club did it though. So I, I learned how to hunt around dogs. Um, Mm -hmm. As a habitat consultant now, you know, dogs present a a bit of a challenge because they, they don't (laughs) recognize property boundaries. Their dogs are terrible trespassers. And so, uh, yeah. And so, you know, it just, it is what it is. And actually, Uh, You know, one of my concerns with dogs in general, not dogs that are hunting typically, uh, because you don't see this from them, but like in Georgia, the, you know, we've got beaches with sharks, we've got snakes that can kill you, we've got bears, we've got all kinds of stuff. The number one animal that leads to injuries and death in Georgia. You want to guess what that animal is? Dogs. Yeah, I think it teed up. <laughs> I mean, it's and, and not to say hunting yeah. dogs do that, but just to say wow. it's, yeah, there's yeah. a there's a there's a, a a relationship there that is strained and difficult when it comes to a oh, hunting yeah. property and dogs. You know, you have a pack of feral dogs that you walk up on. That's a sketchy moment, uh, or can be. 
you know, can be a pretty sketchy moment. So we'll talk about that. We'll maybe talk about some baiting. Uh, I know that that's, that's huge. Uh, something that, you know, I killed a doe over some corn a couple days ago, I guess it was. And so, you know, awesome. Great. It's not typically, yeah, there's, there's, it's not yeah, always part of my, of my, uh, my, you know, what I'm doing, but this particular day I had my seven-year-old with me and I wanted that deer to be right there. <laughs> you know, there yeah. wasn't, it wasn't op- a thing where we're going to say, okay, where's he going to be or where's she going to be? It's no, we need a doe. We need to take a doe and she needs to be right there when we do it. And so very effective, but lots of topics to talk about, but Mark, man, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Absolutely. We're thank obviously going to do several more moving forward. Excited to see uh, you know, where you take this thing when you grab the reins. But in the meantime, Mark, where can folks go that want to find out a little bit more about you, figure out who you are before uh, before we move forward? Uh, people can find me um, on Instagram. I'm at Mark Haslam, um, and Haslam is H-A-S-L-A-M, or at southeast.whitetail, um, and also southeastwhitetail.com. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for your time today. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. That's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, please go subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcast. And if you can leave us a review, I would really appreciate that. Until next week, let's keep doing things the Southern way. <laughs>